Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 240 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. This episode is a little different than the formats that we normally publish, and in fact, it's been several months in the making. As the pandemic was winding down, I wanted to find a way to aggregate some of the information that comes through my multiple inboxes in a given week or a given month and turn it into knowledge that you can use to introduce your palate or, hey, even your friend's palates to new spirits that you might not otherwise have the opportunity to sample or make cocktails with. There's a number of reasons for this. One reason is that a lot of this stuff we encounter on social media and social media algorithms kind of continually keep us in our own local and sort of closed system algorithmic loops by design. And this helps you kind of artificially bust out of those and you know hear some stuff organically that you might not encounter on social media. And another reason for that is, man, there's just a lot of stuff dropping all the time. I feel you. A lot of it comes through my inbox. It's a lot to wade through. So as such, I get a lot of outreach from producers, small and large, who want to share the stories behind their latest spirits projects. But corresponding to the volume of that flow, the fact of the matter is we can't interview everybody. What we can do is select some of the most interesting bottles that we come across and simply put them on your radar. For this, our inaugural tasting and review session, I'm joined by my good friend and co-founder, Ethan Hall, who longtime listeners will doubtless have encountered from some of our previous episodes. And we cover the basic ground rules and ethos behind this project pretty much right at the outset, so there's not much more for me to do here. So please enjoy this, the first installment of our new and noteworthy spirits tastings and reviews. Ethan Hall, how the hell are you? Eric, this is great. Um, unfortunately, I already drank all of these, so... Um, uh, rats. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, honestly, really good to see you. Um, I'm excited to get into this first kind of inaugural, what are we going to call this? A new and noteworthy spirits tasting and reviews, you know, nice, nice, short, concise name here. But before we talk about all the booze that we're about to sample, what have you been up to lately in, in your uh, spirits and cocktail adventures? What have, what have you been excited about? What have you been drinking and uh, excited about on your own time? Yeah. So uh, as you know, over the last couple of years, this is a prime daiquiri season for me. You know, it's my way of warding off scurvy in the summer months. It's also a good excuse to play around with different kinds of, I typically take my daiquiris uh, with a light neutral rum, maybe a little bit of grassiness, but um, this year I've been going the infinity bottle route. So I've got a little captain's blend going on my bar uh, that will contain any number of daiquiri friendly rums with a little, in this case, 
just a tiny bit of Haitian Claren, uh, just to round things out, add some funk. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I love. I like. I like the Infinity Bottle for cocktail making because it encourages you to finish off those pesky bottles that you've got like an ounce or two left in, which then, like a forest fire, encourages future new growth, right? So we're kind of continually renewing the liquor cabinet and the selection there. Well, that's sort of fortuitous. And it's one of the reasons why I was excited to have you on here because uh, one of the spirits, you might even argue a couple of the spirits that we're going to uh, look at today are kind of in the rummy, light, unaged, very um, summery and fragrant space. So uh, excited to get your thoughts on these. And uh, before we do that, I just wanted to clarify some of the rules of our tasting and review here because my thinking honestly has evolved on this. Initially, when I was thinking about this project. I was like, okay, cool. We'll get into like kind of the ratings and review space. I'm going to harness all these people who are coming to me and looking to send me bottles. And, you know, we're going to start turning that into content with reviews. We're going to put stars or we're going to, you know, do some sort of grading system on it. And as I actually started receiving these bottles from everybody and tasting them, I realized a couple things. One, I realized I'm not about to review anything I don't like because who we are as modern bar cart, as you know, is like, we're not here to talk bad about anyone. No need to speak ill. If, if we, if we encounter something that's not good, like there's no need to bash it. We just don't need to highlight it. And the other thing that I realized about like the star system and the grading system, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on grading systems in general, is that it's kind of a blunt instrument right? Like five stars, like even if you're using half stars, I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts on ratings and reviews and limitations and the strengths? I don't know. Uh, mine comes more from uh, someone who uh, came from the era of great inflation where um, if we're reviewing it, it probably, you know, I, I don't want to get into the position where I'm giving an average spirit two and a half stars. I drink a lot of average spirits every day, love average spirits. Uh, there's an entire multi-billion dollar industry built around average spirits. But I also come from a background where getting a C was completely unacceptable. So, uh, you know, I, I'm cool with going with, I would drink this and let's talk about what's noteworthy about it. Uh, and let's mm -hmm. go, let's go there. If something is particularly exceptional, I will call that out. There's some things that I tasted you know, along the way that I, I do feel like do deserve a call out, but that's more of the idea of, Okay, this one gets extra style points. Right, right. And I, I think going away from that allows us to just shed a little bit of the pretension around it of like, everybody wants a five-star review. Everyone wants an A+. We get it. And spirits making these days with the technology and the amount of information that's out there, like ultimately the quality of many spirits that are coming off stills today is of a much higher you know, pedigree than it was a decade or certainly several decades ago. So to a certain extent, it's apples and oranges, which is why I want to focus on, like you said, the noteworthiness of this. In addition, a lot of these spirits are quasi new releases, right? These are not, um, they're, they're not spirits that have been on the market for a decade. On the other hand, they're also craft for the most part in that 
it's not like the new release from James Beam, right? Like this is like the new release from somebody that unless you live in their state or in their region or sphere of influence that you may not have heard of. So as I probably will mention in the intro to this, like the goal is to expose folks to stuff that they might not otherwise be exposed to. We're going to try and cover a lot of different categories. We're going to, we're going to kind of take the, the birdshot approach here. It's not just going to be bourbon. It's not just going to be rum. It's going to be when we do these things, I'm going to try and hit a bunch of different categories so that whether you're a fan of clear aged crafts, funky, weird stuff, like probably you're going to find at least one or two bottles in any given new and noteworthy episode that will be interesting to you and that you kind of want to try. So with that, how about we jump into our first bottle? Absolutely. We got a backlog here. We got to clear. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're a regular listener of the Modern Bar Cart podcast, you've heard me talk about Near Country quite a bit over the last year. And I have another exciting announcement. They've got cheese, guys. Not only do Adam and his team work with a bunch of awesome local farmers and fishermen here in the Mid-Atlantic to provide you with sustainably raised and delicious proteins, but they've upped the ante yet again, and they now offer delicious cheeses, cow's milk and sheep's milk cheeses that you can subscribe to on a monthly basis or you can just go ahead and add them to your cart as an add-on at any point. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a Near Country Provisions subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. So, as I referenced, we got a rum here. And this first bottle here, the first sample that we're going to be tasting through is Clever Fox Rum. And because this is our first go around here, I do want to ask a little bit of patience from our listeners. I What I did is I sent off a survey to all these producers so that we could get as much information straight from their mouths so that we're not misrepresenting anything. Unfortunately, because I made the survey so complex with so much nesting structure, I'm going to need to scroll through that to get to all the specs. But um, I'm going to take us here through the Clever Fox specs. It's made by Clever Fox Rum. They are, I believe, based out of San Diego. So this is what I would call West Coast Rum. And maybe we can think of this as sort of like an East Coast versus West Coast IPA thing. I don't know if that metaphor is going to hold up as we nose and taste here. Uh, But they fermented and distilled this spirit. So it's an in-house project by Clever Fox. And it is Oceanside Distillers. It is a white slash silver rum, so uh, we're not getting any age on this. And it is 90 proof or 45% ABV. So there's a few other details that I'll drop in here. But uh, Ethan, what are you getting on the nose? What are, you, what, are you, uh, what are your first impressions of this Clever Fox rum? Getting a little bit of grassiness, nothing, uh, nothing aggressive, not like a hardcore rum agricole. 
Um, very cool looking mm-hmm. bottle on your end. Um, I see that yeah. playing up a little bit of that greenness. What do we know about, it could be asking you questions you can't answer. What I always want to know about rum, where did the sugar come from? If you can get down to the level of the, the source, great. Um, but I'm talking molasses, cane juice. Yeah. In fact, I, I can get down to the level of the source. So according to the survey here, it says we blend cane syrup and yeast for our ferment and distill in a copper pot still. It's a single distillation with a four plate column. So it's not a pure like a Lembic style pot still. It's like a hybrid pot still with with a column on it. Right. We see a lot of these in the rum world, especially at the craft level. And uh, in terms of additives, there are none. That's something that I definitely wanted to put into our, like our, the rum section of our survey. Yeah. Other than that, the source of the cane syrup, if I reference their website, which I'm not going to pull up right now, I don't want to like slap on the keyboard too hard here during the recording, but basically they source the cane syrup from Louisiana. Okay. Like, so uh, some other folks. Good old American. Um, okay. So we, what we got here is a good old American cane syrup rum. Hyper pot column still. I'm getting a little bit more character than you probably would out of just a straight column. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, I, you know, we, you and I have been back and forth on this one. There's plenty of column to be column character to be found if you're doing it certain ways. Sure. But a little more sweetness on the tongue than I would get out of your sort of standard, really neutral one. So there's there's a nice neutrality. I'm definitely going to use the rest of your sample to make a daiquiri later. Mm-hmm. It is. Oh, yeah or to pour my infinity bottle. I haven't decided. Um, but it's got a good, it's got a good sweetness to it. It's almost got a bit of a, and this is definitely the grassiness of the cane, almost got a tequila, a Blanco tequila nose. Mm, That's what mm. I'm getting. Interesting. See, one of the things that I immediately fell in love with, with this particular product was the, like the, almost the orchard or stone fruit, um, qualities. Like I'm thinking like apricot mm-hmm. when I say stone fruit, it's a big old apricot bomb to me on the nose. You definitely get those honey and sort of like graham cracker notes that that you'll get from uh, the cane syrup there in that it's a lightly, it's lightly processed, right? It's not straight juice. Of course, you can't really ship straight cane juice over a country because you'd either have to refrigerate it or treat it in such a way that you're going to kill some of the characters of it so that it doesn't start fermenting mid transit. Right. So there's, there's no, (laughs) not necessarily any blame that somebody in California on the West coast is using uh, like a syrup product instead of, you know, something like a, a cane or something that's more, I guess, precisely processed like a molasses, right. Where you can pick the grades of molasses that you're using. That said, that is what I attribute these more the like the sweeter, more confectionery notes that you're pointing out to, right? It's like it's it's processed a little to get it to that stable syrup point so that it can be transported. Yeah. Um so what would you I mean, daiquiri aside, let's 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 assume that that this that any good white rum is worth a try in a daiquiri. If we were thinking a little bit harder about how we would use this, where does your head go? Ooh, good question. Um, I'm getting this has, and this could just be from the slightly higher ABV, but I'm getting a little spicier. Um, so when mm-hmm. I think spicy, what I start to think about is, all right, I'm still probably going to take rum in my tropical drink direction. 
I would probably try to play this up on some of the more lightly spiced cocktails that use a few more ingredients. So some of these names are escaping me at the moment, but you know, your default is a Mai Tai, which is going to require quite a few different um, things in there. But I actually want something with backbone when I go into Mai Tai season, as opposed to daiquiri where it's optional. I would actually throw this into a rum Negroni huh. yeah, because I, I think that some of the fruity notes plus some of those more graham crackery notes could go well. I don't know that I would throw Carpano Antica on top of this because I think that might just be a little bit too much of the vanilla plus graham cracker, yeah. but um, like maybe like a Koki mm-hmm. um, yeah, some and lighter. some Campari. Yeah. It wouldn't necessarily, it doesn't have enough of kind of like the, it doesn't have any of the blackstrap character, any of that like heavy molasses character that would really make it stand out in a jungle bird. But there's something about this that does kind of move me in the Campari direction. So if, if I'm thinking about ways to to play with this, I'm definitely, I'm thinking maybe like a, a rum Negroni, um, a mojito would be a nice one. I think that mint yeah. would play well with, with both the kind of like confectionery and some of the fruity notes that I'm pulling out of there. Um, and after all, it is an unaged spirit. So, I mean, granted, I'm sure that the folks at Clever Fox have, have thought to use this in a mojito, but, um, if anybody out there picks a bottle, I think that would be in addition to the daiquiri and maybe a rum Negroni, the mojito would kind of round out the three very different styles of drink that I would use to kind of hone in on how I feel about this particular bottle. The other thing that I did want to note is that uh, for those of us who are just listening via audio here, the bottle is a, a custom bottle. I believe it's made using recycled glass. So there's a there's a definite sustainability streak to the Clever Fox brand. You can kind of see it from their bottle branding. It's a very beautiful bottle, um, but definitely if you're somebody with a fragile sense of masculinity, like this is not going to be the thing that you gravitate toward on the shelf. Um, it's a bit frilly. On the other hand, um, one thing I do like about it is that if this was like a pirate show, this would be the sort of thing I would pick up and bash somebody named Barnacle Pete over the head with to start a bar fight, like on Black Sails or something. I think, isn't Barnacle Pete your father-in-law? <laughs> Yes. Shout out to Pete Murphy. Um, um, yeah, I do like, so I do like the the looks of that bottle. What I would, what I would say is if you're thinking about it from the perspective of your nautical old timey uh, aesthetics that I think this is going for, um, what didn't come to mind at first that I was kind of reaching for is that this could play really nicely in some of your old school rum punches. It is hitting a lot of those characteristics. It's hitting those really basic exotic spices that would hit on that would uh, show up in a rum punch. And that gives you a little bit more character than just your straight, yeah, just your straight daiquiri that I threw out there as my, you know, I will turn a rum into a daiquiri as a right of, you know, as a right of testing. But but, yeah, there's more, there's more going on here. So yeah, good stuff. Definitely. Uh, A couple of like, I don't want to. I don't want to say criticisms because these are more of just observations. This is a young brand. I believe this is the only skew that they have mm-hmm. on the market right now. So a couple of observations that come more from me seeing lots of bottles 
are that 45% ABV to me uh, is a proof point that gets more and more attention these days. I feel like when we were first coming into this market like a decade ago, things were 40% ABV and that's it. And any divergence from 40% indicated that somebody was putting some thought into this. And now when I encounter something that's like 45% ABV, I'm always searching for a reason why. And I don't know that in this offering, I can locate a reason why it's 45% ABV. Um, the booze doesn't, it, it seems fine to me, but I would, one thing that I would look out for if I were following this brand as they continue to release stuff is, are they going to be continuing to curate the proof of their end products to where they think that product tastes best? Or are they, do they think that people are looking for stuff just at 45% ABV? Because I think that's a spot where more and more white rums are beginning to sit in the craft space. And so it's not really a differentiation point. And the other thing is, I'm curious to see what they do with the fox, because I think the fox is a great mascot. I think the greenness, I think the verdant nature of the bottle and the um, sort of kind of for better or for worse, feminine advertising of it, um, you know, is it's going to point it toward a specific audience. So I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with Proofpoint in future releases as they do things that are potentially aged, potentially spiced, potentially not even in the rum world. And I'm also curious to see what this Fox does, because I think it's got a lot of potential, but uh, I think it, we need more data points to see if the branding makes sense with the liquid that fills subsequent bottles. So takeaway is keep an eye on that clever fox. Got to watch what he does. Yeah, he's a sneaky guy. All right. So let's move on to our next sample here. And what we've got is something from actually you and I have a, a fantastic tie in to this particular bottle of spirits. This is a bottle from Mason Dixon distilling in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Why don't, while, while I pour my sample, why don't you uh, share with our listeners our connection? So got a double connect here. Firstly, uh, Cipero coming from uh, coming from Greece. I think we you know, Gettysburg has a uh, well, both Gettysburg <laughs> has a strong uh, as a college and our alma mater, which I think where you were going as a uh, as a very strong Greek life community. Now, uh, that's <laughs> not Greek in the in the sense of the nation of Greece, but also um, I had the opportunity and some of our friends did to uh, visit Greece at various times during our youth. And uh, this is definitely something that is available in weird unlabeled bottles, unsanctioned, some of which are sanctioned uh, across those, uh, those islands. So I actually did end up tasting a few of these um, in their indigenous habitat about this time last year. I think that's where you're going. Yeah, exactly. So Yanni, Yanni Baracus, he, founded Mason Dixon Distilling in Gettysburg a few years back. He has been a guest on the podcast before. So over on the show notes page, I'll link to my interview with him. He's, he's a really fascinating guy. He's got a great story. Uh, he's been in sort of the, the food space, the culinary space all throughout his life. And he also, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, he, uh, he almost 
burnt his garage or part of his house down trying to uh, distill things when he was a kid. So he's he has a, a long legacy in making these spirits. And so uh, when I saw that he was releasing a Cipro this year, I mean, I, first thing I did was screenshotted it and sent it to you. And you got excited too. So then I reached out and said, man, like this would make a really cool addition to our new and noteworthy release because it's so different than most of the styles that you see being put out by craft distilleries. And because he has that Greek background and Greek heritage, obviously this is near and dear to his heart. But personally, I mean, I just like anything that's made with grapes or fruit in general that doesn't touch a barrel or hasn't yet touched a barrel. I'm okay if you intend to put it in a barrel, but I'd at least like to taste it before you do. Give me a little little taste of that before you you ruin it. Um, Yeah, I understand. So what I'm immediately getting here, right off the nose, yeah, it's grapey. Obviously, it's grapey. It came from grapes. Mm. Um, I do think there's a a grape juice nose that is quite pleasant. Uh, The other thing that I'm getting here, and this is more of a... It evokes, I'd be interested to know Yanni's heritage a bit more on the islands that islands or parts of the mainland that um, he considers, you know, his, his heritage. Cause what I'm really getting that is an interesting characteristic of this is there is a smell and a taste to the dry air in those agricultural areas that people like to you know, vi- people like to visit. Maybe it's where the grapes are grown. Sometimes it's olive groves. In the case of where I first tasted Cipero, it was on an island where their bragging rights were the quality of their potatoes. So <laughs> n- this is this is with the utmost respect and compliments to Yanni. This reminds me of Greek potatoes. Interesting. Yeah, it does have. So I get what you're saying. And I, I, I want to return to my tasting notes, but I, I do want to give us the, the rundown that Yanni submitted first. So this is Cipero, and it's it's spelled T-S-I-P-O-U-R-O, Cipero. So it's a Greek-style clear grape brandy. Uh, this offering is coming to us at 100 proof. So we've got 50% ABV in the bottle here. It's distilled from a slow fermented Catawba wine from Maza Vineyards in Pennsylvania. So we've got a Pennsylvania wine. And to me, there's like an immediate connection there, right? Because in Greece, as I understand it, like the Cipro is made from the the grape must, right? So like the, the sort of the leftovers from winemaking or the actual fermented wine itself, but most, most importantly, from what's being grown around there. And we're all familiar with Bordeaux and Burgundy and all these, you know, all of the great French and Italian and, you know, some of the German, Austrian, all these, all these protected areas. And in Greece, I'm wondering if what you encountered was much more of a, uh, sort of like a, instead of a monoculture area where they're all growing primarily one or two types of grapes, where you're seeing much more diversity in what's growing around there, much more locality to it. Yeah. It was not a, it was not an area where they were, where they were necessarily precious about the, uh, you know, everyone likes their vineyard. They're usually, uh, if you know, you've either got people who are trying to farm new land or people who have been there since, well, since the gods walked the earth or yada, 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 either way, they're more about the, uh, 
production process and less about uh, less about this specific type type of grape. It's what works. Yeah. So as I scroll down here, I'm seeing that Yanni said this is a recreation okay. of the first spirit I ever distilled when I was 11 years old. Yeah, <laughs> so it's got some burning garage to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully there's a statute of limitations on, uh, on the, whatever that potential, uh, crime was. Those first batches were made from Welch's grape juice, concentrate and bread yeast. This batch was a little bit more professionally produced and he goes on to, uh, just give a few more details. Uh, Yanni was, uh, using a very similar kind of hybrid still to make this. It was a two, two run distillation. When I when I asked about additives, he said absolutely no additives. So huh. I think we can we can have confidence that there's nothing but these beautiful grapes in this product. I kind of get like a bit of a melony note to it. You get that like almost like like um like a ripe cucumber or like a late summer melon type situation, almost maybe verging on like a bitter melon that you would get from like a, an Asian grocery. Yeah, I get that. I uh, I do get some of those notes. Um, maybe a little bit less. This is not a knock. This is a tasting note. I I give uh, charitably. Not as clean as a cucumber. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or more cantaloupe. And sure. it's definitely got. You know, I, I go back to the honey. I go back to again. There's this um, this interesting taste that that the air gets in some of these very dry, very sunny spots that are close to the sea it comes through and i'm wondering if this is more distillation technique a heritage or if i'm just being transported back to my honeymoon which you know is highly you know preferable over uh washington dc in september sure sure yeah ultimately i think there's an intended rusticity to this and i just i love grappas i love grape distillates i think that one of the things that folks who make these highly polished brandies, certainly in Europe and potentially aspirationally here in the US seek to do is smooth out some of those idiosyncrasies that come not only from the fact that grapes are complicated to work with. Like you're never getting the same grapes from year to year, the sugar content, the acidity, everything's kind of different. But also when you look at these sort of like the, like we can just call it what it is like French cognac, Armagnac, and to a limited extent, like Calvados by extension, you know, a lot of these companies had like dosage into their aged products to kind of give it that really polished and really mellow character. When I drink a grappa, I'm not looking for polished and mellow. I'm looking for a, a, a taste of the place. And what I think the the Cipero from Mason Dixon does so well is it takes this Catawba grape because I believe you remember you and I went to the Gettysburg Wine Festival when we were seniors and we tasted some wines made with these Catawba grapes. And yeah, maybe they weren't going to go punch for punch with a Napa cab or a, a nice Bordeaux blend but they were good. They were interesting. They were unique. And I think this brandy for me captures some of the uniqueness of that region, which is something that a lot of folks don't get to experience. You know, South Central PA 
is a really rich agricultural region. And I love that Yanni is showcasing it in this way. And man, this is definitely more exciting to me than just another brandy or cognac. Yeah. Um, what I wonder, cause you're the, you're more of the aficionado of these unaged fruit spirits. What do you do with these? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, you know, I think we're, I think we're in agreement. This is unique. It's, um, it, it's given me all kinds of interesting thoughts and feelings about, um, you know, the Greek islands and maybe, and some, you know, some farmers, you know, kind of knocking back a few of these, the, uh, um, while, you know, while putting their donkeys away for the afternoon, but all right, let's go to the uninitiated. How do we use this? We have to keep in mind that this comes from a tradition of moonshine, but it also comes from a tradition of places where there's a deep culinary heritage. So first off, before we get into cocktails, this is something that you would break out with meals, right? So the next time you put together a nice charcuterie board, break out a bottle of this, offer some small pours to people to sip and to nose while they're tasting through the carefully curated charcuterie. Like that would be my first move. Moving into mixology, I mean, one of the things I love about these unaged grape distillates, not moving into like maybe some of the like really intense eau de vies, like the pear eau de vies, raspberry eau de vies, apple eau de vies, but with a, with a grape eau de vie that's just one, maybe one and a half steps more neutral than those, my head goes to martini, man. I want to start making funky, weird martinis with this, using this in place of gin. Because to me, the notes of those strange or foreign grapes, right? Grapes that you're not used to people using, to me, almost act like a botanical. So to me, this is almost like a single note, non-juniper gin. Mm. And so I would you know, I would slap this in a martini, man. I'd throw it in a, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm going what i'm going based on the heritage of the of the region i'm thinking honey i'm thinking lemon i'm thinking of these oh, yeah oh that's so much better i mean that's that's definitely the better recommendation mine's the weirder one i mean uh but yeah it's, it's a side well what i'm basically describing is somewhere between a sidecar and a bee's knees it's just uh the sour the sour is where i'd go i just try to put a more interesting sugar component in there Sure. And I think, I think there's something to be said for that because this does like it, it's not sweet. It's not sweet end, but the grapes lend a roundness to it that does kind of beg for acid. So if I were to make a martini, I'd try and do it with maybe like maybe a little bit of dry vermouth, but maybe also like a funky kind of salty manzanilla sherry as Mm. well. Like it wouldn't be like a regular martini. There would need to be some kind of funk, maybe, maybe a little bit, maybe I would go dirty with it, like get a little bit of olive brine in there. Yeah, because, you know, it comes from a place where, you know, traditionally speaking, olives are also grown. So, yeah, I think those would be the two kind of cocktail routes you can go. You can go the sour. If you do the sour, Bees Knees is a solid, solid wreck. And uh, if you're not just kind of sipping this straight with some charcuterie, then, um, you know, play around with my recommendation as well. So with that, let's move on to our next sample. All right. What we got here? <clears throat> right here. Well, I don't know. You, you've got your sample poured already. You tell me what is this? What, what does this spirit smell like? Because we're no longer doing this on video. My my camera crapped out. So so uh, what what do we right, what do we I'm, got? I'm giggling because it's just uh, this smells like a crab boil. This is clearly the old bay vodka. 
Yes, indeed. So it we, smells like Baltimore in the in a very fond way. Does it though? I yeah, maybe. It smells like being at a place in Baltimore. I don't know if this would be the if Yankee Candle made a candle that was Baltimore. This might not be. They, this might be one of the the fainter notes in there. Um, wow. So nosing a vodka doesn't usually yield this type of experience. What what are you are you pulling anything out besides crab boil? I'm well, it's old bay. I'm pulling celery salt. Yeah. I'm pulling a light I'm pulling a light amount of black pepper or mm-hmm. white pepper. I'm not sure which. I like white uh, pepper. I'm not getting salinity. So I'm not getting salinity from this, which is interesting if it's an old bay flavored vodka. Well, can you smell salt? Um if you stick question. your if you stick your nose in a in a box of Morton's kosher salt, are you gonna smell it? No. Hmm. All right. So to give a little bit more context here, we've got uh, this. This is actually a, a one of the newer spirits that we have in terms of release. This this uh, came out only a few months ago, I believe. And this spirit is in collaboration with McCormick, I believe the the sort of mid Atlantic owners of that old spite or not uh, not old spice <laughs> old bay <laughs> old bay uh, trademark copyright whatever it is. So. This is the official Old Bay vodka. This is not an Old Bay flavor vodka. This is Chesapeake the, seasoning. Chest, chest, no, this is this is the Old Bay vodka. So um, I'm going to taste it right now. Have you have you have you taken a sip yet? I have taken a sip. So what are your what are your initial impressions here? Um, my initial impressions are I'm surprised that it's actually pretty soft. I was expecting I don't know Old Bay. It's a heavy. I, I realize it's a vodka, but Old Bay to me is it's a heavy dose of salt, more than anything else. Almost a aggr- almost too aggressive, um, but the whole state of Maryland may come after me for saying that it's the right amount of salt for what you're using it on. But yeah, it's actually a lot less aggressive than Old Bay itself in how I've seen it applied culinarily. I kind of just want to conduct the rest of this segment in the voice of. The, the guy from we own this we, we own this city uh, yeah. but but I, I don't think so. I can maintain that accent for for long enough. One of the reasons why I think perhaps this bottle is softer as you're commenting is honestly something that was striking to me when I when I looked at the bottle and I'm just gonna confirm it now. This is 35% alcohol by volume. This is not even 40% ABV. And I'm guessing that that is about as low as you can go in order to still call something a vodka. Hmm. So definitely got more water content, right? So this is like another way to, to, to look at this. And it's not a criticism because you could say this of any spirit under 50% ABV, but mostly water, right? So um, I might speculate that some of the reason for that also is because some of the spices and the botanicals that are used to create Old Bay seasoning might not fare extremely well at higher proofs using, you know, if, if we're, whether we're extracting them in a gin basket with the vapors, or if they're being placed actually in the pot of the still, uh, unfortunately I don't have distillers information on this. It was not submitted to me, but, um, but yeah, I think definitely the softness of this is probably the most surprising 
element of it. So that my follow-up to that is going to be what aspects of Old Bay are you getting here? Like, what are the good aspects? Is there anything that you're missing? I mean, for me, the salt, kind of. Yeah, you're definitely missing the salt. And that, to me, is, I'm sure, I, let's not get into the chemistry on that. I think part of why you want to do that is because vodka lends itself to so many salty cocktails. The obvious Bloody Mary, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves there, or the salted rim. Right. So no need to play that up in the spirit, necessarily. What I'm really getting, again, stick your nose in there. You get celery and paprika right mm-hmm. off of that, which is great. That's all bad. Yeah. I, to me, honestly, the nose is like, wow, that's surprisingly accurate. And then when you taste it, what becomes immediately apparent is that you need to mix it with something. Yeah. I mean, but that's true. Uh, okay. I'm going to challenge you on that. I think you could in, you could have a very enjoyable time chilling this and knocking it back with seafood. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Caviar yeah, I guess would so. go great with this. I mean, I think I would probably, you know, I would probably choose something that isn't expensive like caviar, but I, I think this would lend itself nicely to, um, you know, this would lend itself nicely to like a Baltimore equivalent of a seafood tower. Um, that And at that lower ABV, you could, I mean, I'm not, recommending this i'm personally trying to cut back a little but um you compare that to like a 40 to 50 percent abv vodka i think you could more responsibly knock back a couple shots of this with your seafood if you were to go that route i don't think that's their intention but that's what i think of that's a really good point yeah you you just completely proved me wrong on that i was totally not thinking of that as a use case but but yeah so i think definitely the seafood pairing seems somewhat essential here and i think Obviously, what we got to talk about is the Bloody Mary. Now, I've been thinking more and more about this lovely, mysterious drink over the course of the summer. I actually just did a uh, a tasting of three different types of green tomatoes that hopefully I'll post up on social media in the next week or so once I have time to cut together the video. But... um, Old Bay and a Bloody Mary, first of all. Are you an Old Bay guy in your Bloody Marys? Um, I can be. It's not um, It's not the top of my list. Um, I'm a bit more traditional. I'm not bound to the region, but, you know, when in Rome. So if I'm drinking a Bloody Mary, Mary in Bloody Maryland, yeah, I'll <laughs> take it. Um, that's, a, that's a given. So I'm a little bit torn on the Old Bay and the Bloody Mary. But I think what we need to assume here is we need to assume that if somebody's making an Old Bay vodka, that Old Bay is quite at home in a Bloody Mary, right? There's a lot of different styles that that you can try from different places around the country, right? Wisconsin has, you know, a, a huge Bloody Mary culture. But I think we take it as a given that Old Bay seasoning is great in a Bloody Mary. It, it hits a lot of important notes that are consonant with the tomato juice. Also, yep. being that this is vodka, so it's this is this is almost like pulling triple duty kind of, maybe d- double duty, double duty plus we'll call it. So, not only is this the vodka in the Bloody Mary when you use this in a Bloody Mary, it's also the Old Bay which kind of begs the question of like, well, do I go 
moss on the old bay as as a certain fast food chain says or do i use the opportunity that i've already hit a few of those important notes to kind of build some other flavors in there right so you're creating a little bit of flexibility there and the fact that this is just slightly lower abv means that it's a slightly more sessionable approach to what a bloody mary can be so i think that's kind of like my half like the half feature that I'm referring to, like the sessionability of it. So it's playing the, the role of the vodka, but it's also saying like, hey, when you have a Bloody Mary, you're at brunch. Are you really yeah. going to have just one? You should probably have another one. But hey, you know what? We're going to help you feel a little bit less bad about it. So to me, where this Old Bay vodka sits is at a place of offering flexibility and versatility for people who want to have some of those notes in their Bloody Mary but maybe have more freedom to play around with extra accent notes and maybe have a, a more sessionable experience. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. You know where else I'm going with uh, with this? So obviously you're hitting all, you, you can hit all the savory notes. So vodka martini, Gibson, you know, you play the salty, you play the spicy, you play the savory. This to me, um, I did cheat a little, I, did a little research on the Old Bay Vodka website, but I think this would play really nicely with grapefruit. So something that's assertive, mm. tart. You know, I, I like playing with those. You know, I'm thinking salt-rimmed glass on a grapefruit crush with this would be amazing. Yeah, little little bloodhound action, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Awesome. Well, yeah, I, I again glad you're here because my head totally did not go to the citrus space. So uh, ultimately this is going to be a divisive bottle because not everybody has like entirely fond associations with old Bay. I know I grew up in a household that had the same tin of old Bay from when I was born in 1989 to probably now when uh, my parents are like, you know, cleaning out the, the spice cupboard. So when that is your reference point for Old Bay, you're probably not going to be like, yeah, totally my favorite thing ever. But I think that for the folks who are in the know, especially the folks here in the Mid-Atlantic, this is going to be a fun bottle to seek out. Hopefully, we're going to be seeing it on quite a few shelves. And uh, when you get your bottle and try it out, definitely tag us on social media and let us know what you think. Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, the entire state of Maryland would... Uh you know, hopefully get behind this product, especially since it's endorsed by the spice company. Uh, the only other thing I'll say is the you're missing one key element of that character that you only get in old, old bay, which is the rust from the can <laughs> adds a nice, deep, rich redness to the color and an irony goodness to the flavor. Yeah, I'm not going to touch that, but that's definitely definitely a trademark of of the uh, the the tin that was in my cupboard. But um, but yeah, so Old Bay vodka, it's a thing now. Go check it out. Yeah, I'm a fan. Okay, two left here, and uh, this next tasting is going to be kind of a a quick review of a recent interview that I had with the founders of Empirical Lars and Mark, and because that interview got so far into the weeds on like their approach to creating a business that is both sustainable and also pushing the boundaries of what flavor can do. We didn't spend as much time talking about the flavor notes in some of these products that they made. So I got you a sample of the Ayuk, the Pasilla Chili spirit. So 
let's start by talking with that one. Then I also have uh, a little pour of the Soka here that I can I can throw a few more notes on at the end. But I'm, primarily, I'm interested in hearing what you think of the Ayuk because it's definitely one of the more unique bottles you're going to find on the market. So what's really interesting about this one, right on the nose, it's got a little bit going on. Um, it, you know, it vague indication that there's going to be some kind of spice infused here. If someone slipped this in front of me, I would probably say it was an infused spirit. Um, but then I just tasted this. This is one of the most interesting things. We're in September, so this is fine for me to say. Probably the most interesting thing I've tasted all year and will taste in the year 2022. Wow. That's high praise. Awesome. Um, I, I don't necessarily disagree, but I want to go beyond interesting. So take me through, like break down the sensory experience once you got it on the palate, because it seems like you got a much more intense reaction once you actually got it on your tongue. Um, yeah. My first thought on this is I, is this actually reminded me of a PD scotch, um, which makes sense. The Pasilla chili, it's got a lot of the same, same ideas. There's a little sulfuriness to this. There's some there's some there's a small amount of heat coming from the chili versus the spirit itself. I don't remember what our ABV is. I it's right here, forty three percent, and um, yeah, quite pleasant. It, what it's got going for it that's a little different from some of the other. So chili liqueurs, I'm you know I'm familiar with. You got your ancho reyes, you got your you got your green, and you got your um, you got your dried. You also have your amargo chile which is that fun, like, you know, chocolate chili Amaro spirit that I'm kind of wild about. This one has similar chili richness, but unless I'm mistaken, they didn't dose any sugar into this. So it's much less of a liqueur. Yeah, that that's correct. Um, reading, they, they actually have a, a really good breakdown right on the label here. So botanicals, pasilla mixe, yeast is a Belgian saison, grains. Uh, so this is, you can, you can also think of this as being kind of in the scotchy conversation that this was, was uh, distilled using a Pilsner malt and purple wheat. So it is yeah. a grain distillate and there is some malt in that grain distillate. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, it is 43% ABV. Yeah, this is... Um this is really, really interesting. It's got a nice, um, I've taken a couple seconds off from it. It's got a nice lingering burn on the tongue. I, I hesitate to say what I would use this in. I kind of, I like it on its own. Um, otherwise I've got like, a, I've got a slate of go-tos anytime I pick up a bottle of Ancho, um, Ancho liqueurs that I would definitely, I'm very interested to sub this in, um, in their stead. Yeah. I, I got high praise for what these guys are doing. A quick follow up on the cocktail. If you're subbing this in for Ancho, something sweetened, are you a little concerned that the sugar level is going to be an issue? Like are you going too dry there? Because, uh, like they, they made a point. I'm curious to hear your thoughts because they did made a, made, they made a point about this during the conversation that we had. It's interesting. Good question. Um, I could lean. So I think of it two ways. One would be that I'd lean into palate richness, which also sugar gives you, uh, might need to put in, yeah, you might need to add a little bit of rich simple to round that out to get the full sub. I don't think I would be looking to, um, how would I say? Wouldn't be looking to sub this as a one for one, just be getting similar flavors out of it, but there's a little lightness to it. Come to think of it. 
I might even go so far as say just like an eighth of an ounce of, of, uh, sweet, just, just enough to like coat a bar spoon before you stir something, for example, yeah. would be enough to do that. Because one of the things about the, the palate richness of this and just actually the sheer density of flavor because of the vacuum distillation and to caveat this, if you have a bottle of IU, you drink half of it and then you leave it untouched for half a year. When you come back to it, there's a decent chance that it's not going to be nearly as intense as it was when you first cracked it because this is not a heat distilled product. These are by and large vacuum distilled products that Empirical oh. is putting out. So there's a freshness, there's a, a newness to this that is going to be most compelling when you open the bottle and that's going to potentially fade over time. So from a cocktail standpoint, super compelling. Uh, just wanted to make those points in case anybody out there wanted to pick these up with the intention of making drinks. Interesting. So this is one of those cases where if you're going for the flavors that you got when you first tasted it, it's an exploding offer. You gotta, it's literally volatile. You gotta get it. You gotta get it in you fast. Or alternatively, a great spirit to seek out when you're going out to a bar because you know that they're running through their bottles before they can, you know, lose their freshness. Indeed. So uh, just quickly mentioning the Soka that I have here in front of me, this is the sorghum spirit that they make. They basically, you, you'll have to, anybody who's interested in this, you need to go back and listen to my interview with Lars and Mark from Empirical. It is an incredible feat that they have done to pack as much what we would call sorghumness into this as possible. They've fermented, you know, they've, they've got fresh pressed sorghum cane using this crazy, um, like triple like uh combine that their farmer has utilized that harvests threshes and juices the the sorghum cane all in one fell swoop and then they do different fermentations and then double fermentations with the sorghum cane using uh i believe a rice wine yeast and uh it pound for pound punches in the same space but also in a, in a delightfully different way than some of the, the funkiest like agricole style rums that you're going to get. So for anybody who's interested in another offering by Empirical, please do check out the Soka. Uh, it also has a great sustainability component and you can listen to all of that in my interview with Lars and Mark, which we will link to over on the show notes page. So with that, are you ready to round out this tasting with, uh, and I would, what I would say is an appropriate pour. So I'm going to pour mine before we, before we reveal the identity to our listeners here, why don't we back our way into this? Why don't you nose this, explain what you're getting with the color, like, like take us through the color, the, the aroma and the palette, and then we'll, we'll maybe reveal what it is. Um, all right. Nose wise, getting peppermint, getting Let's say chamomile, maybe a little eucalyptus. So immediately, you know, to me, you're, you know where I'm going with this. It, it's reminding me of probably a fernet. <laughs> yes. So we've got a nice dark, I would say kind of like cola colored liquid here. Oh, and I've been intentionally since I only have a small like little sample bottle here that I split between us. I've actually been intentionally not nosing or tasting this prior to this recording whatsoever. Um, and 
what we have here is Bear Zero Proof Fernet, B-A-R-E. And so I'm going to pull up our little submission form here. And the story behind this bottle that's that's in front of us is this is one of those serendipitous aspects of going to Tales of the Cocktail where you run into people and they press a bottle into your hand and say, hey, check this out. In this case, it was my uh, friend Michael Fricker, who's out in St. Louis doing amazing stuff, both uh, on the on and off premise front. And this spirit, scrolling down to all the details here, is obviously it's a it's a no ABV spirit. So we've got we've got zero proof, and um, when it comes to What's actually in here is we've got traditional Fernet botanicals excluding eucalyptus, hmm. but with the use of a few different varieties of mint. So uh, probably what you're picking up on is, you know, just like the, the mint family is a is a very um, diverse family of plants. So I think eucalyptus isn't a bad note, but it's interesting to know that they don't use it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like those, well, you know, those different varieties of mint you get in your garden, you could definitely hit a hit a lot of the same notes here. Um, what I also found interesting about this one, flavor-wise, so you know, if you taste this, it's got. It's also there are some zero-proof spirits that have a common set of flavors, and I think it might be technique-based. Um, this one does okay with those characteristics more so than like. Uh, I have to blow them up and give them free advertisement, so I won't. Um, unlike some of these, um, I'll just call them like whiskey or tequila substitutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think you can get away with it here. Um, not that there's anything to get away with. Not that there's anything wrong with that. As a fernet, though, I was the only only thing I would say is uh, maybe I've got a taste for the bitter, but I was expecting it to be more unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think what this, with this zero proof or does really well is the mint, right? I mean yeah. like, wow. Uh, and, and the nice thing about mint is that it does have an inherent bitterness. So I think to that extent, like it is successful. What I'm hearing you saying is that the glycerin is very apparent, right? I mean, the glycerin is not a dirty word in the zero proof space. This is how we extract flavor when we're not using alcohol, right? So this has that glycerin flavor, which has a bit of a sour, and it's almost like a, how would I describe it? Almost like a sour mineral note. Does that make yeah, any it's sense? A, it's, um, it's an astringency. And what I was getting at with that astringency is that is also a characteristic you want in a Fernet. Yeah, I do. I do think it is at home in the Fernet style. Um, I also like the cola notes to it, right? So I, mm-hmm. I note I, I noted earlier that it was a cola color, and yep. for me, that is the color of a lot of the Fernets that I enjoy. Um, you know, we we uh, we recently, maybe not recently, but within the last year or two, we had a a whole Fernet episode where. I hung out with Nick from Cocktail Chemistry and we tasted through a bunch of different Fernets. And one of the unifying factors was that cola note and that that color. Um, you know, you could also, you know, when the mint comes in, you could also verge into the, almost the root beery territory. And I'll be honest, 
if the initial bitterness is not there, I would actually argue that this does really well on the finish. I get I get a lingering bitterness, which is not always, I guess, what you get with a Fernet, or maybe it's not always what you focus on. But for this, yeah. I don't know if you I don't know if you're getting that like almost like gentian uh, quinine bitterness uh, that lingers. But I'm 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 getting a lingering bitter finish. Yeah, you know, um, you can actually the quinine piece. I'll back you up on that one, and maybe that's where I'm going with this astringency uh, carrying across. It's yeah, it's not bad. It's interesting. I, I like that someone's trying. I, I mean, talk about a niche. Okay, <laughs> let's make a non-alcoholic spirit, but let's also make a non-alcoholic fernet that really seems aimed at sober at sober ex bartenders or sober current bartenders. Because um, I'm trying to figure out who else is sober and wants fernet. Yeah, fair. Um, so it looks like Bear has a few like actual spirit offerings. They've got. And these are zero. These are all zero proof, but they've got a modern classic gin. They've got a bourbon whiskey. I, I feel like the bourbon people would freak out if they called something zero proof a bourbon whiskey. I, wow, man. I think uh, we're in. I, I think we're in new territory. I also saw that they have a reposado style tequila. Same idea. Right. Um, interesting terminology. What I will say is, I'm going to walk back my comment a little bit. Um, I, as I am a frequent Fernet shot taker when offered or available, this would probably do me pretty well to sub out some of those Fernet shots. Um, so no, I don't think that these are only in the domain of the sober or even the sober curious. This is a, this is a responsible way to get your kind of, to get that, to get that taste. Well, and, and when you're talking to people in the no ABV conversation, what's the phraseology very often low and no. So if you're simply just looking to, you know, dial down on the ABV a little bit, I think this is a perfectly good fit or conversely up the mouthfeel. I mean, what's glycerin great for, you know, what do we always hear Dave Arnold talking about on cooking issues is he's, what are you afraid of throwing a little glycerin in there for glycerin helps mouthfeel. Um, This is one of those situations where especially, Hey, Maybe you're trying to put something on tap. I believe the glycerin thing also comes in in the carbonation discussion very often. So I don't know, just thinking out loud here, if we're, if we're, if we're talking cocktails and we're not purely talking in the no ABV space, I could see this bare zero proof for net being a really useful way to be intentional about your proof points. You know, this, this kind of brings us full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. And again, I have to back up and say no shade to, you know, Clever Fox because I love, there's a lot of stuff at 45% that I love. I just am increasingly suspicious these days that it's intentional. And also being that I am trying to be a little bit more mindful with my drinking as is, as are most people, when I go to a bar program, I'm, I'm looking for a bar program or I'm looking for a drink on that menu that shows me, tries to prove to me that it has been well conceived from start to finish. And so using this product tactfully is I think it, it's a really great weapon in the arsenal of a bartender who's trying to appeal to people who are more discerning with what they're trying to put in their bodies. Yeah. Um, I, I also think you could probably play this into either, you know, low or no ABV plays on the Fernet and Cola. Yeah. That, oh um, yeah. And when you're talking about an on tap application, you know, you, 
got a lot of you got a lot of options there. So it's a it's it's a cool one. That's Hell yeah. Sure. Hell yeah. So Michael well. Michael Fricker, hopefully we gave you some ideas there. Uh so hopefully when you hear this, um you can get to work on implementing those as some of your partners and uh and yeah. Um honestly, like I, I guess my overall thoughts is that we are now we now live in a world where there is non-alcoholic fernet. And you can approach that one of two ways. You can roll your eyes real hard, or you can say, huh, all right, fine. How can we use this for, for good rather than for, you know, uh, ra- rather than just being frustrated that there has to be a non-alcoholic version of everything these days. And I think, you know, the best way to do that is to actually just shut up and taste it which is uh, why I'm glad we had the, the the privilege to do that here today. Yeah, me too. And I got to say, um, I'm definitely over getting mad at people for trying to make things no ABV. I'm like, who are they really hurting? <laughs> well, Not my liver, that's for sure. That That's, that's very true. So Ethan Hall, uh, just to quickly recap here, we've gotten through a beautiful West Coast rum with some orchard fruit and kind of graham cracker notes that I am really looking forward to mixing with in the Clever Fox rum. We've got what I believe is like probably the first American Cipro that I've ever encountered from Yanni at Mason Dixon. We've got an Old Bay vodka at 35%. So I learned that vodka could be 35% ABV. And, um, few Old Bay related Bloody Mary ideas with that. We reviewed the samples of the Ayuk and the Soka from Empirical, and we rounded things out with, of all things, a no ABV for net. So I think we've covered a pretty wide spectrum. I'd love to hopefully do this again in another few months when we're able to collect enough samples from our partners who are submitting new and noteworthy spirits. But what are your thoughts on the uh, overall kind of sweep of what we've tasted here tonight? I'd say five is a five is an ambitious number. Let's try to chunk these into threes. Everyone likes threes. Um, I think that my takeaways here are Ayuk is you know, that was the most interesting thing I've tasted all year. No knock to the zero ABV for net, which is pretty cool. Um, that rum, yeah, excellent. And um, I think the Old Bay Vodka is going to, ooh, how would I put it? Let's just say I have a feeling that this recently inaugurated fall semester at the University of Maryland is going to have, it's going to be a wash in this stuff. Oh, man. All right. Well, with that, <laughs> I think we can, uh, I think we can officially mark this uh, this inaugural tasting as complete. But thanks to you for joining me for it. Thanks to everybody who submitted spirits. If you're interested in submitting your spirits for a future round of our new and noteworthy, please go ahead and email podcast at modernbarcart.com and we'll send you the survey and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, Ethan, great to hang out and thank you for joining me here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Cheers, Art. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes 
on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. New and noteworthy spirits, courtesy of a whole bunch of incredible distillers, additional flavor insights by Ethan Hall, and a little bit of tasting, sampling, reviewing, conversational magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.